Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening. And welcome to the first in our series of New Statesman centenary debates. The New Statesman was founded in 1913 by a woman, as it happens, despite the androcentric title. And uh, it was an incredible year for feminism. It was the year that Emily Davison threw herself underneath the king's horse in a bid to get the vote for women. It was also the year of the Cat and Mouse Act, which allowed suffragettes on hunger strikes to be released from prison and then re-imprisoned again. One of the most illiberal laws that this country has ever seen. Since then, we've made some excellent progress. Uh, Women have got the vote. We had the Equal Pay Act. But women are still grievously underrepresented in Parliament, in the media, and more women are stuck in low-paid jobs and do a lot of unpaid labour in this country. Feminism has also moved on. Uh, Some of the things that we'll be talking about tonight, for example, internet porn, uh, probably would have been slightly frightening to the Pankhursts and their friends. Um, But we've decided that we should be here tonight to have a conversation, and that's what we feel that feminism should be. It should be a conversation, and this is just our contribution to it. We can't represent all women. We can only represent ourselves. And we hope, after our initial panel discussion, we'll hear a lot from you guys in the Q&A afterwards. One of the things I'm most proud about about the New Statesman blog section is that we have a 50-50 gender split of bloggers, which is pretty much unknown in the media. Uh, And it's one of the proudest things I've achieved as editor of the New Statesman website, is bringing these fantastic women who I'm going to bring out in a sort of slightly showboaty way now. Um, could, could you come out? <laughs> um, a round of applause, please. My final plea is that one of the best things about employing these women is that I need to pay these women. So um, if you like the things that they write and you like their contribution to feminism do consider buying a copy of the New Statesman or subscribing. We have copies at the back. And with that plug, I hand you over to Caroline. Right. (laughs) Right, thanks very much, Helen. Um, Hello, everybody, and welcome to our Future of Feminism discussion. Uh, I'm Caroline Crampton. I'm the web editor of the New Statesman, and I'm your chair for this evening. Um, We've got a great lineup for you, as Helen alluded to. They're all writers for the New Statesman, both in print and online. Um, also known as our crack squad of feminist bloggers. Um, And it's very exciting and a little bit scary to see how many of you are here to hear from them. Um, A few bits of housekeeping before I introduce them. Um, The question we want to ask and hopefully answer today is what is the most important issue facing feminism? Um, I'm going to ask each of our speakers to name their choice of issue. Um, And then we'll discuss that a little bit among ourselves on the panel. Then we'll pause for a short drink and loo break. Um, And then we'll return for questions from you. Um, 
There are going to be lots of people who want to ask questions, and to try and allow as many contributions as possible, I'm going to make a plea now. Please keep your questions short and make, make them questions, if you can possibly manage it. <laughs> There'll be a mic going round, wait for it to come to you, and then we'll try and get as many as possible, as many of different answers for you as possible. Oh, I should say as well, there is a hashtag for this debate, should you wish to use it, and it is NSFEM. Um, now your panel. Um, to my far left, Rhiannon Lucy Coslett, co-editor of The Agenda magazine, a freelance writer for New Statesman, Guardian, other places. Next to her, Holly Baxter, the other co-editor and founder of The Agenda uh, magazine, another freelance writer. She also writes for New Statesman, and together, Rhiannon and Holly have just finished writing their book, which will be published later this year, am I right in saying? Spring 2014. Spring 2014, so obviously you'll all be buying that. Um, Victoria Smith, who you may also know as Glosswitch, writes for the New Statesman and her own blog. She once described herself as a humorless feminist in mummy blogger clothing. So afterwards, you know, you can let her know whether you think that's right or not. Um, <laughs> here we have Juliet Jakes. Uh, she writes regularly on gender, literature, football, sport, film, all kinds of things for the New Statesman and other publications. Um, and she's currently working on turning her acclaimed transgender journey series for The Guardian into a book. Uh, we have Bim Adewinmi, uh, a journalist, writer, editor for New Statesman, The Guardian, among other places, and she's working on a collection of short stories. These are all things you're obviously going to read and buy. Um, <laughs> Laurie Penny, a columnist and contributing editor to The New Statesman, writes for a number of other publications too, and she's the author of several books, including Meat Market and Discordia. Um, and Helen, you already know, deputy editor of the New Statesman, also a blogger for the website where she writes about things like video games, online sexism, and the media generally. So we'll now kick off, and we'll start with Rhiannon, who is going to tell us what she thinks the most important issue facing feminism today is. Um, for me, personally, it's um, sex and relationships, <laughs> education in schools. Um, this is something that I feel really, really strongly about. I went to a state comprehensive in North Wales. Um, from what I gather, talking to my friends of the same age and older and younger, actually, um, state sex education is a very kind of... It, it varies sporadically depending on the school. Um, for us, we had one lesson which involved... Um, we, didn't have we didn't have bananas. We had actual models of a penis... <laughs> plastic with you know very lifelike um and we you know we put the condom on on the penis and then we blew the condoms up like balloons and we rubbed baby oil into them and the intention of this was my deputy head teacher who was um making us do this he was i'd say probably about 65 male um very embarrassed and um you know the illustrative purpose of this was to show that you should not use baby oil as lube because it makes the condom burst. And that was, that was the grand sum to total of our sex education. Um, and out of, I'd say, there were two, about 250 of us in the year. And I'd say by the time we got to the end of year 11, which is our GCSE year, at least 10% of the girls had had babies. And part of that was because, well... There was absolutely no sex education, um, even basic kind of knowledge about the fact that you could go to the school nurse and you could get the pill. Um, and as a result, you know, many of these girls kind of missed out on opportunities that otherwise, you know, some of the smartest, cleverest girls I know missed out on getting their A-levels, going to university, 
you know, pursuing careers that they perhaps wanted to, you know, pursue. Some of them got abortions, but I think a lot of them would go to Liverpool, which was the nearest big city, so that their parents didn't find out because we were a very small rural community. If you, you know, your doctor would know everything about you, they'd be your mum's doctor as well, they'd be your dad's doctor as well. Um, but it's not just to do with kind of reproductive rights, it's also to do with kind of, I'd say, you know, the nature of relationships in general. I mean, there was no teaching about what consent meant, whether, you know, you know that you, you could say no to a boy and that it didn't make you frigid and it didn't make you kind of um, a loser. And I think, you know, that's the thing about being a teenager is you're treading this very fine line, you're getting these messages from kind of pornography and raunch culture that you should be sexy. I mean, when I was a teenager, the most important thing I felt was to be sexy and... You know, you're getting this message that you should be sexy, but at the same time, if you are sexy, you get called a slut. And, you know, it's just horrible. And there's no kind of education surrounding that. Often it's too embarrassing to talk to your mum about, um, you know. And I think it's important that we educate men as well, that we talk to men about, you know, the way, especially young men, about the way that we should behave in relationships and the way that women should be treated. Teenage girls are most at risk of domestic violence that are group most at risk of that. So I think it's important that, you know, perhaps we mobilize a group of young people who are kind of more on the level of the kids that need educating to go into schools and talk to them about these things because all too often it's kind of an adult who's very, very old and embarrassed who doesn't want to talk to you about it. So I, I, I definitely say that's, that's the most important issue, um, educating, especially to do you know, with consent, educating young women and young men as to kind of what relationships entail. Thanks very much, Rhiannon. Um, do any of our panellists want to come back to Rhiannon on that, or should we move straight on to our next thing? Okay. Okay. Um, Holly, I think, is going to talk to us about reproductive freedom. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And it's tough to follow tales about um, baby oil smothered um, condoms <laughs> and uh, realistic penis models. But um, I think probably the most important issue facing feminism today for me would be um, sort of ensuring reproductive freedom, mainly through access to um, the pill and abortion, um, because it's a sort of global issue. I mean, in a sort of more developed sense, when the pill first came out, Time magazine featured it on their front cover because it had had such a dramatic effect on women going into work. And um, in... Um, in sort of developing countries, we've, uh, at the agenda, we've been uh, asked to go to a lot of um, speeches with Women for Refugee Women, the charity, where they specifically mentioned to us that um, the sort of main battleground for poverty um, for women is sort of um, getting access to the pill and um, often to abortion so that there isn't this trap of a uh, poverty cycle where um, women can't control the amount of children they have and then obviously that leads to overpopulation and starvation. Um, obviously, as well, um, access to abortion is um, an international issue, and um, a civilised society should respect um, bodily autonomy for women. There's no excuse not to, and as we see sort of recently in Ireland, um, that's a problem very close to home. So I think, for me, that would be the most important issue. Thanks, Holly. Um, Victoria, you're going to talk a little bit about early years education. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. yes. Oh, sorry, Laura, you want to... Yes, go for it, yeah. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about why we use the term reproductive freedom rather than just abortion rights, because it's 
so important. I suppose um, I used reproductive freedom because I was meaning also um, your freedom of how, when to reproduce, so the pill and things like that, and rather than merely abortion rights. And that was my main sort of linguistic reason. Victoria, sorry, go ahead. Yes, I was going to talk about um, children and what we're teaching them about gender difference and what they grow up thinking about it. And I realise this may feel a little bit like um, I'm being, um, I'm, I'm the mummy, so I'll, mm. I'll talk about kids. But I think it is a really fundamental issue because certainly from a lot of how I feel I've developed as a feminism, as a feminist, and how a lot of people, I think, come to feminism. It's not through learning about it. It's through a kind of unlearning all the rubbish that you pick up when you're growing up, and it becomes really ingrained, and you get a kind of ingrained sexism that's in your head that you don't even notice it's there. And I think this links into ideas about privilege and the way that we don't question inequality on all sorts of levels, not just to do with gender, is that some people just grow up with this ingrained sense of entitlement, and others have this almost imposter feeling that um, they're not quite right. And I think with children, it comes at a very early age um, in the culture that surrounds them, in the fact that um, the TV programs they watch, the books they read, main characters are male, in, t in the kind of ideas that we have on child rearing. I think recently, particularly, there's been a real resurgence in very gender stereotypical ideas about how you raise children and how you educate them within schools that really shapes what people think of themselves. And I think there's quite a strong message that I see, certainly in the things that come at my children, that men are people, but women are just women, and sort of men have a kind of central role in life, and they're kind of active, whereas women are kind of a passive adjunct. And I think this feeds into so many attitudes. I think it feeds into rape culture. I think it feeds into our basic ongoing acceptance of the fact that women do most of the unpaid or low-paid work, and, and you know, this has been a thing that was a big issue in second-wave feminism, and it's still not sorted, but we almost say now, oh, but women have had feminism, they've had the choice, and they don't want to do that. And I think that's because by the time people reach adulthood, it's too late to really question it. And I think, I suppose what I'm really saying is we really need to get, get them young and kind of <laughs> not... not brainwashing them but unbrainwashing them and keeping them you know babies will grow up to be people they're not just boy girl pink blue they're, they really have to be able to grow up with the choices and the potential and and to feel that they're fully people that they're not just um, a gender identity so um, Victoria can I ask you something because I have quite a lot of nieces and nephews and I'm awful at being the aunt that goes I won't buy you any pink Lego I won't buy you any dolls <laughs> um, my sisters take the piss out of me a lot but on a practical level how do you deal with it when everybody's so insistent on is it a boy or a girl you know giving them blue clothes and how do you deal with it, having to sort of reject other people you know well-meaning people trying to project that onto them I find it very difficult with um sort of my family have these very fixed ideas and um, I mean, I've got two boys, and um, my partner's sister has two boys, and we often say, gosh, we're really relieved that nobody has a girl, because I think then the difference would be really obvious. But, but I think we buy our kids sort of whatever, not whatever they like, but sort of... <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, my... It's funny, my youngest son, who's three, got a doll's house for Christmas, and he was asking for it for ages, and he wanted a pink doll's house, and he was really fixated on it. But it was interesting that when we went to his nursery school play and they said, what do you want? 
and he said Alori. It was like he knew that in a different context, a different thing would be expected of him. And then almost I thought, does he say he wants a doll's house? Because I, he knows I'd like him to. You know, it's, what does he really want? And it's just really hard to sort of. I think you just have to try really hard to be neutral about it. And you know, when he's going like, I'm not wearing pink socks, they're girls' socks, and you're just like, I know you have different feet. It's just you wrote before about um, one of your kids want he wanted to be a witch. Yeah. Um, for Halloween or something, yeah. and uh, a grandparent kept saying, no, no, you're a wizard. That was yeah. my brother. It was yeah. just this kind of, you know, and it was because he liked Room on the Broom, and it, it's a witch, and it, it's just like, <laughs> wizard, wizard. It's, just, it's really, people get really het up about it and really don't confuse them, but I think it's quite confusing to fill their head with all these ideas that half of the colours they see and half of the toys they want to play with are off-limits, and... And it, it just shaped how they think for such a long time. Something else you mentioned there about this idea of having to unlearn yeah. bad things. What do you think the, the biggest thing you had to unlearn was? I just don't feel like I'm doing it all the time. I, mm. I see them, but even tiny things. Like, I mean, recently I was talking to a friend and we were both saying that we think our partners are better at filling the car with petrol, which is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. And it's, and it's just absolute rubbish like that. But it's because our mothers would never fill the car with petrol. Because you don't. And it's, it's just little things that you just don't question it. And mm. I wonder if anyone else has something like that. Laurie said that taking the bins out was a blue job. It is a blue job. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Like, yeah. <clears throat> I, I used to have uh, fights with my old housemate about this, but partly because we had a bin that was really tall. So I couldn't like get it out without spilling all over. Like that's fair. It is fair. So it was a height thing. It's not a gender like, thing. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Anyone else got something they feel they had to unlearn? So yeah. Anyway, topic. Um, moving on, Juliet, you're going to talk about intersectionality, I believe. Yeah. Um, with regards to the place of um, kind of gender variant and queer perspectives. Uh, as part of the feminist movement. Um, before I kick off with that, though, I'll just say, Victoria, my childhood would have been miles better if my parents had bought me a doll's house. So, you know, um, it would have made telling them all sorts of things much easier further down the line. Um, oh, you should get one now. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's never too late, is it? Um, all right, no. Um, Another thing I'd like to pick up on, uh, Victoria talks about um, unlearning things, and uh, I had a very different kind of coming to feminism because I was born and raised male, and um, I was living as male at university uh, about 12 years ago, and um, I considered myself radical and feminist, um, and I came across the Janice Raymond text, The Transsexual Empire. It was quoted in a record sleeve by a band I really liked. And uh, some of you may be familiar with this text. It's the most um, aggressive and sustained feminist uh, critique of transsexuality. And there is, uh, I can make myself quite unpopular here, but there's a kernel of sense in the way Raymond talks about gender identity clinics in the 70s uh, being run mostly by men who demanded a certain kind of stereotypical feminine uh, presentation from transsexual women who went through those gender clinics, but was really, um, I think, the kind of thing you can say not particularly stringent uh, in analysing the nature of that relationship between gender identity clinics and the people who went through them, which was often actually very antagonistic. Um, 
So it was quite interesting for me coming to feminism and then finding a brand of feminism that seemed to be quite prevalent that didn't really want to welcome me as a kind of gender variant person. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. I have experience of being raised male, of spending time in all male spaces um, and encountering the kind of level of misogyny that you can encounter in certain spaces when people think there are no women or female identify people present. Um, from there, I became interested in, in you know, kind of uh, more contemporary feminism, the kind of line that runs through Judith Butler um, and talks about gender being a kind of performative thing, um, about gender roles that we internalize and externalize and the relationship between ourselves and the society we live in. Um, and I began kind of exploring that through kind of feminist and queer performance arts, a line that runs through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, and you find a very interesting alliance between queer people and feminism. Um, and this has led me um, to become immersed in intersectional theory, um, this idea that there are a number of different um, prejudices that people can um, encounter in different spaces, and they can sort of overlap with each other in strange ways. And I started off from the point of view of thinking, well, I'm transgender and then transsexual, and I experienced a lot of prejudice. But intersectional theory actually allowed me to think, well, what privilege do I still have? What power do I have? Um, how best to use it? And I think these are really, really useful uh, concepts for anybody who is approaching particularly kind of mainstream media from a feminist perspective. If you have a platform that gives you a level of power, I think it's far better rather than saying, well, I belong to X minority. Um, this is how I am victimized. Um, I think it's very good for media practitioners and people of influence in those spheres to think about what powers they retain, how they've been able to attain that platform, what privileges have taken them there. Um, and hopefully it will make people a bit more willing to listen to other perspectives. It's all very well saying that feminism should take on patriarchal attitudes and attack them first and then sort out its internal differences. But it's very difficult to motivate yourself to be a part of that movement if you're few and not allowed to be. Um, my final kind of thought on that, really, is that these kind of intersectional approaches um, should always take into account class as well. Um, and particularly taking a more broad um, approach to different oppressions and how they overlap will hopefully get people to think a bit differently about equality campaigns. Um, it's long been a big um, problem of mine that mainstream equality campaigns for, for example, LGBT rights focus very much on attaining access to the most kind of conservative institutions and, um, and kind of buy into the kind of dominant social structures. Um, so what you end up with is a sort of a form of LGBT um, equality um, that emphasizes equality under a kind of conservative social system. And I think probably uh, most people at a New Statesman um, conference will sort of understand that equality under a conservative social system isn't really equality at all. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, um, what, what sort of practical steps, someone, say someone who's just recently coming into a discussion of feminism, what practical steps can they take immediately 
to, as you say, kind of identify their platform and not f and feel welcome immediately? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, well, I don't <laughs> know not, if we even know the answer to sure it. I but have I have an answer. Yeah. Um, I think it's more... It's adopting an attitude, really, um, that... Adopting an attitude of just self-questioning, I mm. think, and a kind of a level of self-consciousness um, about your own kind of actions and ideas and where they come from. Um, I'm not sure I can really offer anything too much more concrete than that, actually. No, I think um, that's probably right. Um, I know, Bim, you also wanted to talk about intersectionality, so maybe mm. you could comment at this point. Yeah, um, I... Um, Basically, um, when it came to selecting what I wanted to talk about this evening, I decided to go for the most obvious thing I could as a black woman who's also a feminist, intersectionality. Um, it seems to me to be the buzzword of the moment, and in particular because it's not a word I heard very much of um, when I first began looking um, at feminism. Um, and there are, I think, reasons for that, in that we, there wasn't the internet when I was growing up, so I did not have the same um, access to resources that people have nowadays, which is why I find it particularly alarming slash distressing when people say, oh, that's academic nonsense. And you think, no, it's not. It's really not. I learned this literally two years ago, and I did so by going forth and looking. So for me, intersectionality um, inevitably um, crosses my life. Um, and before we had a term for it, this is the interesting, or at least the key thing, I was living intersectionality before I had a name for it. So I find it interesting when some feminists, um, some columnist feminists, will say <laughs> stuff like, oh, what is this academic word, blah, 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 it's bollocks. I mean, excuse my French. But it's just, it's nonsense. Um, I grew up in London and in Lagos in Nigeria, um, my family is Muslim. I'm clearly a black woman. I'm clearly of African descent. My name is Bim, so it's pretty African. Um, there's a number of things that have contributed to the person that I am today. And then for someone to say, let's not focus on this one thing, let's look at this big thing, is, it's a nonsense. It's impossible. Um, and I was, I was writing something that will be um, online tomorrow for New Statesman, so plug. Um, but, um, it will, I, it's good. Sorry? It will, it's very good. Oh, thank, you. thank you very much. I paid her to say that. Um, but um, it, I went to the Women of the World Festival um, at the South Bank um, earlier this year, and there was a bit when Mickey Turner, who's a photojournalist, um, and she spoke about talking to Nikki Giovanni. I'm sure you all know who Nikki Giovanni is, right? Oh, oh, dang. Okay. Um, <laughs> Nikki Giovanni is a writer, a poet, an activist, an amazing, fantastic black woman, uh, fearless and just fantastic. Anyway, she, um, this woman, Mickey, was talking to her and asked her, why do you think there was, you know, black women were so absent from the equal rights um, movement of the 70s? And Nikki just said, that wasn't our struggle. And I thought that nailed it. And then two, a, a day later, I went to see Alice Walker, again at the South Bank. You all know Alice Walker, right? Okay. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and um, somebody, uh, Mariella Frostrup was doing the Q&A afterwards, and she, made, she wrote this really long question about how, what are the sisters in the West doing for their counterparts in the developing world and all this stuff. And um, 
first of all, Alice gave a fantastic answer and very calm, kind of went, I don't understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> to which the rest of the crowd went, woo! Anyway, um, but then she answered it and said, let me tell you something. Uh, to her view, she said, feminists in the West have adopted, or rather they are looking, um, and they have taken on the ideas of their fathers and brothers. So when Nikki Giovanni says that wasn't our struggle, and when Alice says they've taken on their brothers and fathers' fights, it's very much a case of, for many, many women of color across the world, when people were fighting for this feminism, the second wave, all that good stuff, which, you know, has amazing repercussions for, I mean, you know, good things for the rest of us, the fact of the matter is, it wasn't, black women were not fighting that fight. They were trying to live. It wasn't about being equal in that way. You have to select the thing that is most useful to your survival. And I think interse intersectionality, this idea that we have to discuss it around, for me, gender, uh, I'm sorry, um, um, race and geographical location is incredibly important because I hear a lot of feminists and inevitably they're almost always white saying stuff like, you know, let's fight this thing and oh, this infighting or this, and it's like, no, I'm living it. So it, it can't, we can't deal with it later. And just because I have a headache, but I also have this gangrene, doesn't mean that we're going to just ignore the headache and let's just deal with the gangrene. It's like, yeah, but I'm really, my head really hurts and it's affecting me, so can I have that? And we're told all the time to forget the headache. And I don't think we can. I don't think we should. Um, so that's, that's, that's where I'm coming from. And then the other element to that is the fact that, like I said, I'm Nigerian. I got my passport a few years ago, so it's official. Um, mm -hmm. And I often hear lots of people saying stuff like, let's go and help them. Uh, I was watching something today with Femen, the topless activist, and there were the women taking off their tops at the Eiffel Tower, and they were talking about all their sisters in the Arab world and across oh. Africa, and she said, and I, 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 I shit you not, she said, um, we know your fights, we want to help you, and I have never felt the urge to reach into my screen, go stand like, and just shake a human being and go, what are you saying? There is this idea that we must be saved, those of us not in the geographical West. Yes, there are problems. Yes, there are issues. And I say this as a Muslim as well as a black woman, so I'm wearing all the hats today. <laughs> and I know, I know the urge to, for people to come out and help. And yes, there is value in allies. But then, similar to what Juliette says, being an ally is not a state. It is a process. And I think a lot of people stand on this thing of, I'm an ally, so you know what? I'm helping you, take the fucking help, take the help. <laughs> and that's not how it works. And we have to work on the ground with, you know, partnerships. There has to be, they have to be collaborations. We cannot prescribe one feminism fits all. It's a nonsense, it can't happen. So that's, that's where I am at the moment. Well, thanks very much, Bim. One thing I would love you to talk more about is, because, because of some of the columnists you mentioned, I think intersectionalities got a bit of a bad press recently, and has become quite closely associated with this idea of infighting. What do you think we can do to separate them off again? Honestly, I don't care to separate them. Screw it. Yeah, we are infighting, if that's what you Let's want fight. to call it. I think this idea that you come to feminism, and it is a space where everything is amazing and it flows beautifully, in no other circumstance <laughs> do we expect that. 
in no other place. Mm. Suddenly, because we're women and we're talking about issues of women, it's a case of, well, why aren't we all getting along as we discuss these like things? Like nice girls. Like <laughs> nice people. And it's such an, it's, it's, nice. it, it just doesn't work that way. So this idea of, I think it's fine for us to be mm. shouty and a bit angry about it, because guess what? It's anger making. That's how I feel. Yeah. But then I'm a very aggressive person, so... <laughs> <laughs> can I... Can I just maybe um, something that's been on my mind with uh, you know the, this wave of columnists that you've alluded to talking about intersectionality and the tactic is often to construct a kind of straw man version of the people who, funnily enough, happen to agree with them and also find the concept that they don't want people to understand too difficult to understand. Um, so I wonder if you sort of agree with my thesis. This is basically a gatekeeping tactic. Oh, I completely agree. And I recognise it from other places, from other discussions. Um, and it's not, it's not exclusive to feminism by any stretch. It's everywhere. But it's, I suppose it's more disappointing in feminism because you assume that these people are with you, not against you. So to have it quite explicitly laid out that, no, 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 you might think we're with you, but we're not. And then what I love, one of my favourite things, a friend of mine who is an author... Um, she was talking, I was talking to her for a piece about retweeting praise on Twitter. And she said, oh, you never do that. You wouldn't go around kind of telling people she thinks I'm amazing. It just doesn't work like that. <laughs> you, you wouldn't would. say, well, if you did that, then you're a terrible human being, so you shouldn't do it. But I love it when somebody says, somebody shows a sign of support for one of these columnists. I love how they've become this code of columnists. Um, <laughs> can, I, can I absent myself from this? Feel free to. Feel free to. Um, and then there is inevitably a, a flurry of retweets. Exactly. That's what I meant. I've seen things where you click on one, they kind of go, never mind, so-and-so. We understand what you're talking And I'm like, do you not see what you're doing right here? So I think that's... Ent- I, I completely agree. There is this us and them. And people have been lumped into the us. And sometimes I want to say they're doing you no favours by putting you under this group of people who cannot learn. It's that thing, and I wrote about Covenjane Wallace, and people kind of going, her name is so hard. And I was like, well, you've somehow learned to say Zach Galifianakis. You've learned to say <laughs> René Zellweger. You can learn to say Covenjane Wallace. You can learn to see where there is privilege. Oh, yeah, special word, privilege. <laughs> you can learn, and you, it's a matter of choice, and not enough people choose to do that. It's because it's, I understand it. It's comfortable. We want to stay where we are, where we are, top job, where things are smooth and things are great. But... If everyone else is crying out around you, if, if I have this headache and you're choosing only to see the gangrene, then it, we're not going any further. I'm going to stop talking, but anyway. Helen, you want well, to Well, no, I, I kind of thought, I, just because as somebody who's been on the kind of the wrong side of this argument, I guess, because my feeling is that intersectionality is a fantastic concept, it's a, but it's a, hard, it's a hard word. And my experience of feminism is often going and talking about to, to audiences who aren't feminists. I mean, I think this must be like the only room in London where the majority of people know what the word cis means, for example. <laughs> Which is wonderful. It's a great room to be in. But you have to try and communicate to people in a language that they can understand. And it's not that they're stupid. It's that they're busy. It's they're busy and they, they need to know what this argument has got to do with their lives and what it's got to offer them. And that's where I think that I do slightly diverge from you two because I can often find that sometimes there's so much attempt in kind of finding an ideological purity that there's not enough exception that sometimes people are genuinely trying to learn, but they just don't have the words right, they don't quite know it. And it's not that they're, it's not that they're bad or ill-intentioned, it's just that they're not there yet. And I definitely don't believe in this idea of, like, it's up to you to educate yourself, because actually it's not. We're, it, we're 
you know, if, if we're part of a social movement, it is our responsibility to be ambassadors for that social movement. I hear what you're saying, but again, I can't agree fully. I think there is... I've had people come to me and say, when I've been tweeting about something, for example, because Twitter is the means, and then they'll say, so what do you suggest I read? Ooh. And I give a couple of... I give sometimes, but other times I just kind of think, man, I learned this myself. It's, there's, when I went to university, <laughs> which wasn't even that long ago, Google was a baby. <laughs> and in the meantime, it's come up leaps and bounds. You have books on Google, for God's sake. It's not, I mean, I know people are busy, and I know I spend a lot of time on the internet, so you would think I wasn't very busy, and I'm not. But, <laughs> but there's time. And you might get things wrong, and there is nothing wrong with getting things wrong. That's to be expected as you start out on a journey. But I also think there needs to be less of the coddling. I hear people say stuff like, but how do we introduce feminism to young people? And I just think the same way we introduce most things, just throw it out there. People are inquisitive by nature. That's what marks us out as human beings, that and the opposable thumbs. We can do stuff. We can flip pages. We can click. <laughs> I understand that it's hard sometimes. But I don't know. I think it feels very much like a luxury sense. I'm not saying you should go out there and just, you know, swallow all the books and then just regurgitate them because it's impossible. And I'm still learning as well. I get that. But I do think there is something to be said for some intellect. If you say, if someone says to you, if you hear about feminism and you are interested in feminism, that you, that's self-acknowledged. Yeah. Then I imagine you can put a tiny bit of effort. <laughs> but I'm talking about people who aren't interested in feminism. Like I went on LBC to talk about International Women's Day and they said, so what is feminism? <laughs> well, well, let me just tell London's have? cab drivers about what feminism is. And I couldn't really go, well, you've got this an amazing book by Bell Hooks, and you should definitely read some Judith Butler. And because, you know, people don't. People have, you know, they come home from work, they're tired, they put their kids to bed, and mm. then they just want to watch TV. And, 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 and I, that's, that's my problem, is that I, those are the people that I want to talk to about feminism, not people who, it may be people who can't even, you know, who don't have the time or the energy to read their academic books. Mm. And I do think there's, that's my problem with, some of the kind of academic language and the, some of the sort of idea about self-educating people is that we're just, we're up against fundamentally people are very busy. I think, um, as interesting as all this is, I think we have to move on to yeah, Laurie's thing, otherwise we're going to, you know, completely run out of time, but we'll come back to this in the questions, I'm sure. I don't um, mind, we can just go on. If you well, <laughs> do you want to have your point and also talk about your, your issue at the same time then? Okay. And men. Oh, and men, yeah. <laughs> three things, um, Laurie, three things. Three things. Um, so, uh, Caroline and Helen... <coughs> <clears throat> emailed us before all this and asked us, we have to, have to pick one issue that, that matters most to you in terms of feminism. And yeah. so I, was, I got out a sheet of paper and I wrote, is it, I couldn't decide if it was sex or class. And, and I thought, and, and, I, and, and I was looking at this, I actually made a list. It's like, should I talk about sex in four minutes or should I talk about class? And actually I was looking at this piece of paper and thinking, isn't that the problem actually? with feminism right now and with, and with gender politics and intersectionality right now is that in so many cases, we're made to choose, not just in the feminist movement, but also uh, within the left, within, um, I don't know if everybody here considers themselves part of something broad and amorphous called the left. I certainly still do, with certain caveats. Um, and, uh, or, or within the liberal movement. Um, the, the idea very much is that Either women's issues are a side issue or issues of class and work and money and power are a side issue. And whatever space you're in, you have to shut up 
and only talk about the one thing. And this is where this is where discourses like intersectionality are massively, massively important. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald says that the mark of true intelligence is to be able to hold more than one idea in your head at the same time with, and still function. And <laughs> I, I, I do believe that most people are cleverer than than I think. Sometimes, um, when your job is to is to be part of the media structure, there's an inbuilt, particularly in Britain. Um, and, in, and in certain parts of the US, there's, there's a tendency to sort of look down to readers and to assume the conversation is one way and assume people are more, more stupid than they are, I guess. But actually, most people are able to hold more than one idea in their head at the same time. The trouble is that feminism over the past 30 years has become... I'm not going to mince words here. It's become a movement designed to further the interests of white, middle-class, cis, straight women living mainly in the West, ex normally in London or New York. That's it, basically. Um, and that's, that's the main problem I have with feminism right now. Although I still call myself a feminist, I believe feminism can and should be different. Um, it's... Uh, a report came out this week by the IPPR, um, the Institute for Public Policy Research, which uh, suggests said that, that well, the headline on, on all the articles about it said, "Feminism has failed working class women," um, and uh, the, the findings were you know, surprise, surprise. Um, the people who have made most gains from the women's movement in uh, the past 50 years have been women with existing wealth, women who own property, women who are in partnerships where there is a significant amount of property, women who can afford basically to hand the, uh, the collective oppression of work and power down the chain to somebody with, from a less well-off social background normally. And the, the the oppression of work and power, which we're talking about, unpaid labor, domestic work, boring things like that, that it's very hard to get pieces into the papers about. Um, this stuff is handed down often to uh, women from other countries, uh, women who are not white, women with children of their own to look after. Um, meanwhile, we're still talking. The headline issue over the last couple of years has been, can women have it all? I mean, really. Um, where, where, by the way, it all, the definition of what the, this it all, which we're supposed to have, is, is now uh, marriage, babies, and a, and a career in, in finance or politics. This is, meant to be, this is the one thing we're now allowed to want, and it turns out that even that we can't have. So basically, um, and, and, and then there's a rash of articles saying, well, maybe, maybe feminism was wrong all along. Maybe we should just, you know, buy some Kath Kidson and go back to the kitchen. <laughs> sorry, I have a thing about Kath Kidson. I'm really sorry. It's, it's totally, it's actually totally irrational. I, I try and squeeze it in, in every talk I do. They're, they're nice so, details, Laurie. I don't understand what your problem is. They're nice details. They're not, they cost like £24 for a bit of cloth with some birds. Anyway, so I'm not going to get, it's really, it's really irrational. So, anyway, class, feminism, power. Um, but, uh, but nobody's asking when we're talking about having it all. Um, in, that, in the article, the Anne-Marie Slaughter article, you know, women, can women have it all, really? No, no, we can't. Um, the, the answer was, well, even the women who are trying to have it all, they manage to have it all because they have an army of staff. And hang on, like, has anybody asked whether the nanny can have it all? 
No, it would be a stupid question. You know, that's not even on the table. Um, for me, and for large numbers of people, the reason feminism sounds alienating um, is because we're not talking about the issues that affect most people most of the time. Like, really interesting, Helen, that you said, well, people, people don't have time for this because they're going home and they're looking after their kids. Well, that's, a, that's exactly the point. Women are looking after the kids, and this same study showed that women still do over 75% of the childcare, domestic work, housework, and this is in partnerships where there are, where there, where there are uh, men and women uh, raising kids. Um, and in single-parent households, uh, 92, I think, percent of single parents are women, and they, they generally do all the childcare. It's, it's issues like this which are... Which, which sound less than sexy when, when, you, uh, when, you, when you pitch them or try and talk about them, but actually, this is what it gets down to, the meat and gristle of sex and power and how they intersect. For me, it is possible to be a feminist and to achieve limited gains within, um, with, within a, a, a notionally feminist structure. You can talk about sexual violence or you can talk about... Um, about body image issues, for example, without talking about economics, work, and power, and socialism. It is possible to be a feminist without being a socialist, although that helps. I sort of want to get a campaign going where we put that on the mugs instead and give them out, but I don't think it would be that popular. But um, I think it's really stupid to have an analysis of work in economics and socialism without being a feminist. For me, it, it just doesn't work. You can't talk about money and power without talking about unpaid labour, without talking about the work of sex and child rearing, without talking about sex workers, obviously not all of whom are female and cis, but that comes within the spectrum of work and sex and power. It's, I'm aware that I've gone on, so I'll stop. <laughs> um, but it's really, um, it's really, for me, it's really interesting to see how class has been sidelined as part of the discussion of feminism, and then feminism itself is blamed for not fixing stuff for, for the working class and working class women. Um, I, I had a point to make, which was about your talk, but I don't know if I have time. Do I no, have time? go ahead, go ahead. <coughs> oh, yeah, um, I, I read last week, which I, um, I thought of when you were talking about how um, I was going to come back and say, talk more about feminism and colonialism, because... Um, over the past, well, feminism has long, feminism, in inverted commas, fighting for the rights of women over there somewhere that isn't here in the West, has long been used as a, as a cipher for colonialist impulses. And we saw that, um, we saw that uh, hundreds of years ago, and we see it, you know, in the past 10 years, over the, where notionally saving what George Bush called the women of cover, um, was used as one of the pretexts for in, invading Afghanistan, which of course was nonsense. But um, feminism is still used as part of this weird patronizing discourse. So there was this, um, so in India, obviously, I, I imagine everybody here has been following what's been going on in India, one of the most amazing cultural movements, grassroots movements against rape culture, culture probably ever seen in the world. and. Um, I think last month, a group of Harvard academics helpfully put together a package for the women of Delhi, advising them on how to fight rape culture. 
um, and sent it to them because they were academics and they knew best, which is, which is stupid enough anyway in, before you consider American universities, right? Have you, have you any idea of the rape culture that goes on at American universities? And you open it, just look at the internet, look at Reddit, for God's sake. It's uh, American universities are one of the, uh, the kind of the places where rape culture is fostered and developed and made popular and sort of funny. And it's uh, it they have no. It's like academics in that part of the Western world have no place to be to be telling to be to be, to be telling the women of India that this is like this is how you do it, guys. Just that, have a few frat houses. That actually feeds in very nicely to what Helen wants to nominate as her most important Yeah, you, I mean, you, you mentioned a couple of things. We, when we wrote a, a New Statesman Leader last year, and it's one of the most powerful things I've ever written, it started with three words, which were, rape happens everywhere. Um, and I thought that was really important to make, we were talking about in the context of George Galloway's remarks about Julian Assange and his you know, idea this was bad sexual etiquette, this was all, all that he was accused of. And again, it comes back to that idea of like, but you can't, you know, these big men on the left, they're doing important work, so we mustn't, this is, women are just collateral damage along the way. Um, and so I really wanted to talk about rape because I think it's been such a big issue recently. And it's one that, although I find it incredibly depressing to talk about, I also see reason for optimism. There's been two massive cases recently. The first was in India, the gang rape on the bus in Delhi. And that's interesting because that is a woman who did everything right. Uh, you know, she was accompanied by a male companion. She wasn't out on her own, and that did nothing to protect her. And there was a second case in Steubenville in Ohio that Laurie wrote about, and that's a woman who did everything wrong. She got drunk, she knew her accusers, she talked to them afterwards. Uh, and the way that that was casually documented in text messages, the text messages between her and one of the protagonists um, are heartbreaking And that she asked, you know, why don't you like me anymore? Why aren't you talking to me anymore? She hadn't got any idea about what they had done to her. Um, but what was interesting about that was the coverage of that trial. We saw a lot of victim blaming going on. But we also for the first time that I can remember, saw a really concerted resistance to that, to a lot of people standing up saying, it doesn't matter how drunk you are, it doesn't matter if you're friends with people, they don't have any right to invade your bodily integrity when you can't consent. Um, and so although I found that a very harrowing case to read about, I found it one that gave me cause for optimism. And that's why I would nominate rape and sexual violence, because if you fundamentally can't feel safe as a woman just because you are a woman, then it affects everything that you do um, Laurie and I both write a lot and talk a lot about rape threats online and that's another way of saying you're not welcome here we don't want you to feel safe, don't have a voice don't speak out, don't be too noisy, don't be too visible um, and combating that is incredibly important to me and that's what I would nominate Yeah, does anyone want to come back I'd like to say yeah. something to, to what, what Helen said, um, again I'm just giving you my column for free um, but, I, I but you'll be giving it for free on the internet tomorrow anyway. That's this is the problem with journalism. Different free. That's an HTTP free. This is in person. Um, I mentioned the slot walk um, in my column to, that will be tomorrow. Um, and there was something that I, again, something that I agreed with very broadly in terms of what he was trying to do. But another thing that made me kind of pause and not go on any of the slot walks and kind of had me slightly reserved was that as much as I agreed with the idea, because this is entirely true, how you dress, you know, no means no, yes means yes, end of, that's it. And a lack of a, a, lack of a no doesn't mean yes either. So there's a whole spectrum. Essentially, there needs to be, you know, this is what Rihanna was talking about in terms of consent. It's absolutely imperative. Um, but as somebody in a brown body, which I've had, by the way, all my life, <laughs> um, I understand that there are certain things that 
my brown body connotes things that are beyond my own power, beyond my own, uh, my own ability to define. It's, it's out there. It's in this cloud. Um, what my sexuality is. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a straight black woman, I know what that is. Um, and I think for many people, in the same way that lots of black women won't call themselves feminists, but will call themselves womanists, um, there is, again, I'm looking around the room and I'm trying to see some brown faces. And I'll be honest, there's someone waving up top. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but this is the case that you, you often, the people who, when people talk about this stuff, this idea of the, the, um, that my experience is universal. And yet there's a whole bunch of us. I know we're a minority, but we're here. And we are basically kind of put aside. I mean, my, my biggest focus is popular culture. So I write a lot about representation in popular culture. And I was watching an ad recently. It was for Venus, the shavy things. Um, and they've just collaborated with Ole, Oil of Ole, remember from when you were kids. Um, and the woman in the ad, from the beginning to the end, is brown. And I bet you nobody else noticed but I told another black friend, and she was like, yes, she was black. And we had a moment. It's the same thing that when I was watching the trailer for Shame with Michael Fassbender, right? Um, and I saw Nicole Bihari, and I called my, I literally called my sister. I said, have you seen the trailer? There's a black woman in the trailer. <laughs> and representation means a lot. And you don't notice it because you are the universal. And I say you in this general white audience. If you are the default, you do not see how things affect you separately. So when people talk about rape, for example, and there's a statistic in America, and they go, one in, one in four women before the age of 18, American women, will be sexually harassed. And then I just saw somebody reply very quietly and said, yes, that's, um, that's double for brown bodies, and it's even higher if you're Native American. Mm-hmm. And that was just a little thing. It wasn't, but, but this, this universal, as... This, you know, my story is a universal. So when we talk about these, all the issues that we've mentioned today, mm-hmm. there are extra intersectionality. This is what I mean about intersectionality, that before the term, before the academic term, people, people were aware of what it was because they were living it and they were around it. Um, and again, it talks about class. I grew up, um, like I said, partly in Lagos and partly in, in London. And in London, I was very firmly working class and there was no doubt about it. I grew up in a council house. Cancel flat, even, not even a house, yeah, um, in Stratford, in East London. I don't know if you know Stratford, but pre-Olympic money, it was a shithole, right? Um, and that's not even changed even now, which I love deeply inside. I'm like, yeah, look at all this. This is rough. It's brilliant. Um, and I know when people talk, I, lots of people talk about stuff like, you know, the white working class and all this stuff. And I think to myself, oh, I grew up with that. And back then, we weren't called, they weren't called the white working class. We were all just poor together. You know, it's not a thing, you know. But, there's, there's, but then even in that context, my story will be different. And that's not me trying to 
take part in the oppression Olympics and kind of, because nobody wins, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. But there is something to be said for difference alongside the bigger fights that we're fighting. And too often they're just not addressed. So that's my eternal bugbear. Uh, and it's an ongoing thing, and you learn more, and you try and do better. And that's fine, because you're allowed to, to be bad and get better. That's the nature of most things. Um, but I think the, the key thing is that people need to understand that. And it's not even that difficult to explain to people that the opportunities that you have had are not exactly the same as the opportunities another person has had. And when we say to people that this is really difficult, like Laurie says, I think we undermine. People are not stupid. They're not stupid. And most of them want to be making things better. And when we deny that they have this agency to go out and make things better, we do everyone a disservice, I think. I think on that note, we're going to break for some drinks um, and a loo break and all the rest of it. And we'll come back in about 15 minutes for your questions. Thank you very much for your attention so far. Great. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Um, we're going to jump straight into questions now, and I would reiterate my plea to ask brief questions so we can get as many people as possible in, um, questions rather than speeches. There is a microphone on both the floor and in the balcony. Wait for it to come to you, both so we can hear, and also because Conway Hall are recording this, so it'd be nice to have your voice on there. Um, right, so, go, questions. Caroline, you pick. Yeah, I know, I'm waiting for people to put their hands up. Um, lady down here. <laughs> Hello, um, my name is Angela O'Shea. I'd like to ask the panellists, um, Mr Gove has issued a new national curriculum. It's as dull as dishwa uh, dishwater. What would you have in the new national curriculum? Thank you. Right, who wants to kick us off? Um, well, I'd, I'd have... Um, Politics first. I'd I'd have a lesson that ex well at least one lesson that explains to everyone how the voting system works because most you know I've met tons of people who don't know and I, the only reason I know is because it was part of my history A level um, and yeah a lot of people don't know how first past the post works and once you tell them they'll go oh that's really unfair actually um, <laughs> which is probably why they don't teach it um, so. <laughs> I teach politics, I teach feminism, um, but not just feminism, kind of um, all aspects of equality I think are important. I think, you know, like I said before, sex and relationships education, unfortunately, they were just debating that in Parliament and it unfortunately didn't get amalgamated into the national curriculum. Um, so those are the three things I'd have on it. Art I, yeah. as well. Art. Keep me arts. I think, like, just building on what Rhiannon said as well, in sex, sex education, it would be um, so much more beneficial to have um, the relationship education that she mentioned earlier. Um, because, for instance, like, I grew up in a household with a lot of domestic violence, and um, I really um, would have appreciated having education that told me what a normal relationship looked like and um, what was abusive and what wasn't. And I think um, that's something that's so important to me. I would definitely have that on the curriculum. Can I risk getting pelted with rotten eggs by saying that Michael Gove has done something right? Ooh, sorry, uh, sorry. But um, he's introduced... <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'll go and sit in the stocks after this. But he's, um, he's introduced coding to the national curriculum, computer, mm. more computer, emphasis on computer science. And one of the really big problems, uh, the tech industry is incredibly sexist. Mm -hmm. And there are very few, like, games which I write about a lot, they reckon that it's about 6% women. And actually, that really is reflected in the, in the themes that you see in games. 
So what would be fantastic is, and it's a great creative industry for the UK. So his emphasis on that is good. More of that, I would really like to see. Mm. Victoria. Um, well, so I suppose what I think most about would be the kind of um, standard subjects that we've got. I mean, the history curriculum, we all know just how regressive and backward-looking Mike goes. Ideas, sorry, I'm assuming everyone agrees with me. But, but, you know, but, we do. Um, but it, it's this, um, you know, his idea of a narrative and it's all chronological and great names. And the other day we were looking at, we've got some ladybird bird history books and we're looking at the great names they list on the back. And a ladybird book from the 1970s has more women in it than Michael Gove's history curriculum. And I think the real issues with the way that that's shaped children's mm. ideas of what matters, who changes the world, who affects the world, and how it's, who made the world the way it is today. And I think that's, um, that is a real concern for me, because I think um, there is this kind of feeling with a lot of women and girls who are, who are learning history, kind of, well, what did women actually do? Did we just sort of sit in the background for a long time? And I think, um, and women's history seems a very specialised area. And I think um, the way that Michael Gove wants to restructure it is, is really bad for getting people to think critically and to realise that people affect the world in different ways. Mm. Um, yeah, um, that's a very good question and um, beyond saying we should have more lessons on the Commune of Paris and the works of the Croatian performance artist Sanja Ivakovic, I'm not sure I've got an answer. <laughs> um, both good answers. <laughs> I would gladly have done GCSEs on both of those things. Um, I think actually what I kind of, what I wanted when I was at school, and I only realised this after I'd left school, uh, was that it wasn't so much what I was taught that I felt was the problem. It was the way I was taught to think. At secondary schools, um, there was very much an emphasis on learning what you were told were facts and reproducing them in exams. And it was only really once I got to sixth form, I did, um, I did A-level and then degree in history and it was only really once we got to sixth form that we did any serious investigation, you know, more than like a week, of the idea of historiography, of the idea of looking at sources uh, and critiquing them and basically learning how to challenge the ideas that we received. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of the main change I'd like to see in the way education works in this country. It's a more kind of pedagogical issue more than what the content is, although those two things would obviously uh, have a kind of symbiotic relationship. Um, yeah. um, I would, take us? Yeah, I would destroy the exam system and get rid of PE and teach every <laughs> kid how to build a computer from scratch. Um, apart from that, I, I, I have problems with the school system in general, but I can't, um, I, I think what everybody else has suggested is, is a very, very good idea. Also, um, sorry, um, I went to school under Section 28 uh, in the late 90s, and um, I don't know what the situation is now in terms of teaching about kind of LGBT and queer stuff and gender variance, sexual diversity. We had, uh, under Section 28, we had an hour on homosexuality, nothing mm -hmm. on gender diversity, but an hour on homosexuality, uh, in which it was, uh, it was under the banner of religious education, firstly. Um, so that's how the argument was framed and um, our RE teacher uh, said, you know, very faltering, just said, look, we're going to, um, well, we're going to watch a video and um, the two boys in this video, well, um, 
they go camping and um, <laughs> and uh, well they're, they're, they're homosexual is it and, and then he moves on and, what uh, was this video? Well, I'm not sure. We might have been carry on camping. A kid called Bill in my class will forever be a hero to me. Just put his hand up and said, "Sir, what's a homosexual?" And um, <laughs> <laughs> then had to unpick it. But I, I don't know if sort of education around divergent sexualities and genders has improved at all. Can I? Like, mm, yeah. it, it's not just about what should be taught. I think people still don't get quite how regressive some of the education that is allowed to go on is, particularly in religious schools. I, I went to a religious school for a while when I, was, um, when I was about between 10 and 12, and I remember being in one of the kind of many, many compulsory religious education um, sections we, sessions we had, and being explained with the book of Genesis um, why it was why in, in most situations you know women should defer to their husbands. This was like in, in 1999. And I remember actually I was you know standing up and saying because I've always been difficult. Um, <laughs> I, this isn't okay. This isn't also this isn't actually what it says. And um, and the and the, and uh, I remember the teacher said, um, well, all you boys, none of you marry Laura. It's like, I'm 11. <laughs> so it's really weird. It was, it was the stuff that goes on and the stuff that is, uh, I don't know. It, I just think people should not be, I think it should be classified as hate speech, this stuff. It's... If we're going to have a competition, I went to a convent school and one of our teachers <laughs> said, um, when I was growing up, I was taught by nuns that every period is God's tear for a lost opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> And that's why I'm an atheist. I <laughs> <laughs> well, see. I went to a convent school, and it wasn't nearly as bad as that. God's tear. Crikey. Okay. So on that bombshell, another question. <laughs> Let's take one from up in the gallery, if there is one, uh, right in front of you, lady in the middle there. Hi, um, I'm Saive Sullivan. I just wanted to ask about um, something that didn't quite come up. It was touched on. Um, intersexuality and um, just homosexuality, especially lesbianism, just could you talk about that, please? <laughs> go. By all means, who wants to kick us off? Anyone? Why is everyone looking at me? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, you're like the representative from Planet Lesbian. I've, as got, much short, as... I've got short hair. That's, <laughs> That's all we... we've got, I'm afraid. That's what I mean. I know, exactly. Um, I mean, I, do you, do you mean talk about political lesbianism? Because that's apparently coming back as a fashion, a bit like bell-bottoms. <laughs> I didn't mean, poli oh. mean political lesbianism. I meant more like in relationship to intersectionality. You touched on, um, on race and on class, mm -hmm. but within um, feminism, I find um, that people who I know who identify as lesbian are very, very strident feminists in a very particular way. And it is almost like, I feel like even they're cutting people like me off who I'm also lesbian, but just not, I don't agree with their views. So like, how do you think that we can move on from that, basically? Like, how can you develop with that? I think it's, it's similar to what we said earlier, that there can't always be consensus all the time. Mm. Um, and there are strands anyway. I mean, 
I know people, like I said, I know black women who won't call themselves feminists, but call themselves womanists, and they have very, very good reasons for that. Um, reasons that, you know, you can read about online. Um, but but the, 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 there, are, there is historical context to it. Um, I, I can't assume to, to speak for lesbian feminists because I'm not a lesbian and I wouldn't want to jump in and say something that is wildly off base. But I imagine when you say your views differ, I think that's to be expected. Um, and where possible, there should be more dialogue. I think a lot of the time we um, are looking out for ourselves in very narrow ways. And sometimes um, what is self-serving is not necessarily good for everyone. But just because something is self-serving doesn't mean that it's not true as well. So, yeah, um, I'm going to have to tread very carefully here because I could get myself into quite a lot of trouble. But um, if you've you know, followed kind of historical tension between certain uh, lesbian feminists and certain trans feminists, um, I think the most important thing we can do maybe is just recognise that all of the kind of concepts that I've just named, for example, are kind of constantly in flux, and that actually that's all right. Um, you know, we can continually shape and reshape our identities and have our own take on these kind of ideas and these labels, um, and just kind of respect other people's take on them as much as possible, I think. It's, um, I don't know, maybe that sounds a bit kind of saccharine, a bit... Um, bit hallmark but um yeah that's kind of how I feel um I wonder if any of you want to comment on this idea that within a group there might be louder voices than others and the quieter voices feel like they're being drowned out what do you reckon to that well as, as the designated loudest voice person on the panel <laughs> I guess I should probably take it is an I mean it's an enormous problem and it's something that uh, you know we should be all of us on the stage should be reminded of fairly often is the fact that we have power through the fact that we get published, we get read by people. Um, but I think there has to be a sense in which you say that you can't represent everybody. You can try and get more voices on. You can try and bring them in. But equally well, you can't try and... You have to try and speak on behalf of other people sometimes, which is a really difficult thing, I think, for the feminist movement to kind of deal with because so much of it is about trying to let people speak yeah. in their own voices. But... Again, we're talking about people like low-paid workers. You know, there aren't any people here tonight who are working two jobs because they're out doing that job. So it's really important that somebody tries to speak for them. And I think that's, I think that is, you know, I think that's really, it's a really big challenge because we spend so much time saying, you're not representative, you know, you're only speaking for yourself. But actually, sometimes you do have to do a little bit of that. But it's how you do it and how you're aware of the power and privilege that you have in doing it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Laurie? Um, in terms of the... Helen is completely right, um, <clears throat> and uh, part of what um, myself and others were saying earlier about the problem of you know, feminism with a capital F um, being dominated by the voices of white, middle-class, professional writers who are heterosexual living in the West and cis, is that there is this issue of representation. So if you, uh, an interesting exercise to do if you, if you read feminist books for a hobby, like I think most of us on the panel do, <laughs> um, is, is to look at the introductions, because there is now a standard model for a feminist book, which is, um, and I guess, like, I think some of us have had to think about this recently. I, too, am writing a feminist book right now. So what you're meant to do in the introduction is there's this page you have to have where you add the disclaimer about, well, well, I am not 
a black woman or a lesbian or a poor person or somebody without a book deal or a column or um, but um, and as such what it says as such I cannot speak for anyone else and that's the disclaimer but then then they go on to you know extemporize from all from their experiences and say well this is what it's like for everyone there is this sort of hegemonic totalizing idea that if your experience is not like this you are somehow failing as a woman which is how class and gender really in, interact in terms of oppression they don't just go on at the same time and it's very um there's this idea that as a woman particularly as a woman writer or as somebody who has a voice you you have to speak you cannot you're only allowed to speak for yourself and you have to always be talking about individual stuff um, but you also have to speak for every woman ever so so women's experience is both individual and trivial and it's all the same it's this really interesting way of writing off what women have to say which I've been I guess thinking a lot about recently I'm gonna jump in and say that's not new I'm a black person <laughs> and Again, look, I said I'm not playing the oppression Olympics, but I know that when I speak, I am speaking for all my people, as though we just had a black AGM and I've come with the minutes. <laughs> so How did that go, by the way? It went well. Yeah, we served chicken and watermelon. Um, it's just, it, there is this pressure, whoever you are. I think if your class is quote-unquote a minority, there is always going to be this case of you're speaking for everyone. That's impossible. Um, and I think the important things, I mean, look, I write for The Guardian as well as The New Statesman, so I've got all my left credentials marked. Um, and so I look and I see how many other brown faces there are, okay? And there's not a lot of us. There just isn't. And when I see other people, I mean, I've had, I get emails from lots of young black journalists. I'm like, well, Bim, what can I do? And I have people also email me and they, the headline, the subject title in the email is, here's your next race story. <laughs> and I was kind of like, man, I want to write about films. Like, that's, that's my biggest joy is pop culture. But then I understand also that there is a responsibility because I come from a working class background and I am African and I am British and I am all these things. So I understand that there is pressure, but there's also, I think, a certain amount of responsibility that I have whether or not I want it, it's similar to, not similar, this sounds so self-aggrandizing, but um, you know how people talk about Rihanna, and they go, but what about the little kids? And Rihanna's kind of like, man, I'm just a woman, and I like to have sex and do these things and whatever. <laughs> and it's difficult because on the one hand, she's very much her own person. She has agency, she's a grown woman, she can do whatever the hell she wants. On the other hand, listen, I've seen kids, and I was a kid once, I, had, I did the same thing with Madonna when I was a kid. She was everything. Um, so I understand that there is... There is a constant balancing act, I think, to be done where you have to give of yourself um, and acknowledge that it's not the universal, but then you have to tread the line and sometimes a lot of people fail and the key is to get up and try again. Um, yeah, um, having engaged in a project for the last few years where um, I was sort of motivated specifically by what I felt was the lack of trans perspectives in the mainstream media, um, I sort of got myself into this weird position where um, I kind of felt that I had to be very, very explicit about not representing all gender-variant people, but also not misrepresenting gender-variant people, which was a really, really hard line to tread. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that I frequently got that wrong. 
Um, and if I look back over some of my older writing, I kind of hang my head at certain generalizations I've made or, or whatever, or the way I've positioned myself. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the most important things that um, everyone on the panel can do as people who are writing for publications that take up a leftist position is be aware that one of our kind of functions as columnists is to kind of mark out the left limits of the mainstream discourse. And I've always gone into pretty much every piece of writing I've done with that in mind and trying to think, well, how can I try and push the space further? Is there anything I can do rather than try to represent all gender variant people, for example, is there any way I can work that tries to maybe open up space for other gender variant writers? Mm -hmm. But I find that really interesting because from my point of view as a commissioning editor, I want to try and increase the diversity of voices that we have, but you don't want to be, for example, I don't want to say, so, you're black, I've got a story about black people, do you want to write that? You know, and saying like, oh, let me get the trans writer to write about the trans issues, and people get put into these silos, and, it's, it, and that, I think, is a real struggle about... You want to get these issues heard more, but you don't want to pigeonhole people. And I'd be interested to know, what, Rand and Holly, what you think. Because you, probably at most of us, you most narrowly kind of focus on feminism as a kind of subject. And do you ever worry that that means that you're pigeonholed, that you're just the go-to people for the feminist topic? I suppose we do kind of find ourselves pigeonholed that way. Not that it's the worst thing to be pigeonholed for. <laughs> but I do find, I think I really agree with um, Juliet when she's saying um, it's so much better to be opening up a space for more people to come in rather than trying to be um, totally intersectional in your own writing because so many people write what they know and that probably is the best kind of writing and so you really need to have, you don't want to be tokenistic obviously, but you need to have people writing what they know and I found that sort of a very depressing offshoot in the feminist community was um, when Girls, the TV program, got sort of consigned to the feminist dustbin because it was called Girls. And everybody was like, well, it's called Girls, and yet it's um, representing this very like narrow, middle-class, white, cis sort of variant of women, which it totally was. And um, that in itself is a problem. The bigger problem is that there aren't loads and loads of other programs that are also called similar things with um, a diversity in it because we're feminists and because we're women, um, we can't have the privilege of having girls. But nobody said that about friends. Nobody said that you had to have every single diversity of friendship. I did. Show. That's something that Bim said about friends. Bim I know did. I've heard okay. of yeah. <laughs> But she is rare in that, I will say that. But it seems, yeah, to us, when we keep sort of having feminist stuff come to us, it seems like it just needs to be such a bigger space with so much more people in it rather than us... I hope that's some, a sign of how far we've come there. Because when I watched Friends growing up in Worcester, which was, let's face it, <laughs> not the most ethnically diverse place in the world, uh, it didn't even occur to me. And the fact that, I, that we've moved on to now that that is an issue is itself hopefully a slightly hopeful thing. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. It's kind of what I was saying earlier, though, that I, was, I couldn't not see it. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember when Gabrielle Union guested in one of the earlier seasons and then at the very, the very last season when Charlie, played by Aisha Tyler, came on, and they had the same storyline. Both Ross and Joey liked them, and I was like, come on! <laughs> Two black women, and you give them the same storyline? Nobody else noticed. And I was just a seething, like, ah, oh, friends! <laughs> Having like said that, 
Friends is one Sex of my favorite shows. I, I was telling someone last week, if somebody put a gun to my head, not that they would, and asked what my favorite sitcom was, I probably would say Friends or Frasier. Now, Frasier, that's another one. Love it to bits. But this is, this is the thing. As feminists, I think we're allowed to like deeply problematic things. And if I didn't, I wouldn't watch anything. And I love television like a sister. So <laughs> I would have no sister. So it's, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that yes, there are problems. Um, but lots of, I think what I find annoying is when people kind of tell us to not concern ourselves with that. Um, and I, I wrote about girls like almost everyone in the world um, <laughs> at the time. And the headline that my piece was given was, can a black girl relate to girls? Which is bollocks, because of course we can. They're human <laughs> beings. But I understood, the, I understood the reason for it. It's, it's fairly link-basey. But, but I think what I was saying in that was, yes, girls is, is, uh, is, is, is problematic. But I think I wrote in there, it's also really quite good for all <laughs> yeah. of its nonsense, for all of this. And then the fact that Lena Dunham and Leslie Arfin and all these people said increasingly problematic nonsense on Twitter didn't help their cause at all. And kind of going, yeah, well, I only know cleaners or something along those lines. The only black people I know are cleaners. And you're like, shh, you're not helping yourself. <laughs> so there's a lot of... <laughs> people, I saw tweets, people saying that. And then I saw a woman, I think, on Salon or Slate, don't quote me, and she said, well, of course there aren't any women in, any black women in Marnie's world because how many black people do you see in art galleries in New York? <laughs> That's the correct response, people. <laughs> um, but that, this, is, this is the reality, is what I'm saying. So there are problems. But a lot of the time, I think lots of people just refuse to... I was saying this to Victoria backstage. Sometimes people just refuse to engage because in order to engage, they would have to examine themselves and they would have to agree that they were in many ways complicit with the system in which we all live. Now, that system works out better for some people and the people that it doesn't work out so great for tend to be very annoyed and when they come on Twitter, they don't come with a genteel tone of, now let me tell you of my grievances. They come with an F you this and all this that, which is understandable. It's not pleasant, but it's understandable. And I'm not saying because I've been at the end of some horrible things and I understand the, the stress of it, but I think the least we can do, as Laurie says, we have these voices, we have these platforms, we can engage where possible and we can try. We can try, and we can improve. I think if we show a marked improvement every time, if we are looking, if we are questioning, if we are reading, if we are trying, I think people appreciate that. Let's take another question. Let's get specific. Um, uh, lady at the back in the aisle there on the ground floor, the scarf there. <laughs> Sorry, it's really hard to identify people. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great discussion. Um, one thing I've, I've noticed, though, is I'm sure everyone's noticed this, just the lack of men here and the lack of men on the panel. Oh, fuck. Um, it's just a... <laughs> but really, <laughs> but it's really what important because men? some of the, the, the key issues that have been mentioned, so <coughs> sex education in schools, uh, reproduction through to sexual violence, um, domestic violence, sexual violence, these are all... I mean, this is not a one-way battle. It requires somehow drawing men into the, to, into the discussion much more. And it's a barrier for me, because any time I've, you know, I've mentioned this event to male friends, it's not really... It's got, they don't feel it's got anything to kind of do with them, like what's the part that they've got to kind of play. And 
yeah so it's just that that's so how to how how what do you see as how to kind of break down that barrier because I, I do think it is still a barrier and it's I've noticed it at other events I've gone to that are about you know gender feminism it's just the lack of of guys that are around, basically. So how, we'll how do you go how to panel Helen work? first, because she put together the panel for this, and she'll have oh, something yeah. to say on this. First of all, I think you make a really good... I was talking about this event to my sisters, who actually both don't live in London and work in the media, and therefore are normal people. Um, and they said, my <laughs> elder sister, who works as an accountant, said, well, it's fine, we have all this um, diversity training at work, but uh, the women turn up. It's just the women. And that's mm -hmm. it. Like, diversity is, is like women's problem. And, and, and then, you know, nothing comes out because they've got no organisational support. And it's like, well, we gave you the chance. Um, and I think, that is, I think that is a really pro big problem. And, and we, at the States, when we have lots of men who write about feminism, when I came to put this panel together, I thought, I thought that, that we, we would get that question. And then I thought... I thought, fuck it, actually, is what I thought. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Um, because I, like, working in politics particularly, I'm, I get invited on as the token woman to be the, like, oh, no, we haven't got any women on this panel of blokes talking about it. Like, quick, get the woman. Um, <laughs> and I thought, well, actually, yeah, it probably would be fair if we had a man on this panel. But I thought, if anyone's going to be angry about it, I would first of all like them to be angry about all the all-male panels that I've sat through in my life. Um, and yeah, we should definitely engage men, but I don't think that that necessarily the fact that they're not on represented on this panel is means that they're not welcome. Like we very much made this an event that we wanted men to come to, um, and I'm very happy to have men write about fem feminism. But if it's it's a woman's movement, and it's got to be led by women. It it, it you know it just it can't it just can't be. Um, I would uh, well look. I get this question a lot, and I think um, I given, I don't want to be like an old handy, but I've given quite a lot of feminist talks over the last couple of years, and this always comes up. It's like, why aren't you appealing to men? Why isn't feminism appealing to men? It's like, because feminism terrifies men. You know, you can't, you, like, I hear this all the time, and I think people who aren't feminists hear this all the time. It's like, oh, you should just be nicer. You should, you know, we'd listen to you if you were just, if you just changed your tone a bit, maybe like... <laughs> you know, crossed your legs and wore a nice dress and, and weren't so shouty and loud and angry. Why are you so angry? Why you got, <laughs> seriously, like, and actually, why don't we get some men to talk about their problems? Actually, tell you what, men do talk to me about their problems, but they are afraid to talk about their problems because the gender system works us all over. Men know this, and actually the bravest of them already show up. When people talk about appealing to men, they don't mean appealing to all men, they don't mean to appealing, appealing to the men who are already sitting in their bedrooms afraid to express themselves because gender and society is working them over. They mean appeal to the men in charge. Why can't feminism, well feminism has already worked itself over and half destroyed itself trying to appeal to the men in charge and that didn't work, didn't it? <laughs> so I think really, I, I don't think feminism is about appealing to men. The men... Yeah, but no, I'm sorry, and what it shouldn't, you asked, what are we doing to make this more welcoming to men? And actually, I think feminism is scary. There are some men here. Again, put your hands up. Hands up, hands up. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Can, can well, men, it, men are, one of the reasons men are a minority is that feminism is frightening. It's frightening. Gender politics are extremely frightening. I'm sorry, what? I'm thinking about how do you break the 
can I, can I'm sorry, I say this is something? But yeah, Rhiannon. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic because a couple of weeks ago, I was in a pub in King's Cross with um, one of the other girls who writes for Living Gender. She's called Emo Till. She wrote a thing about body hair like a few months ago that, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, did really well. And we were, we were sat in the pub and we were there for quite a few hours and we were talking about feminism and, you know, putting the world to rights. We had two fine maybe three I can't remember um and at one point the waiter came over and he was like listening in on what we were saying he was clearing away our English tapas which is you know fish fingers various other bits and bobs and um he went I'm a feminist and we sort of both turned to him and he, he went I know I don't look like a feminist because I'm a waiter but <laughs> I am a feminist and then he like got involved in the discussion and he talked to us about it and it was great and then the next night, I went to a birthday drinks, and I was at this kind of birthday drinks. There, was, there were mostly women there, and I was kind of talking a bit to some people I hadn't seen in a while about what I was up to. And this other guy came and joined in the conversation, and he said, I'm a feminist too. So I think it's something that I personally, in my, per, you know, in my social life, I'm seeing changing Men quite slowly. And I find Victoria, it's Victoria, yeah. I, I mean, I'm a straight woman, and I have a male partner. And he's very reluctant. He agrees with a feminist viewpoint, but he's very reluctant to call himself a feminist. And he has, um, I mean, there was one occasion he wrote um, a what, what we both considered to be a feminist blog post. And he got absolutely flamed for it, for being a man writing about feminism yeah. and accused of mansplaining, accused of saying what women should want. Because, I mean, he was talking about what he felt men should be able to have greater involvement in childcare. Mm. And this was seen as wanting to control women's lives because childcare is a women's issue. And, you know, and, it, and it's very tricky to tread the right line because I, I can see where the critical criticism was coming from. But obviously, because it was my yeah. partner, I was like, leave him at <laughs> but, but he wouldn't call himself a feminist now because of it, because he doesn't want to see like, it seems like he's appropriating a movement for, for women. And, and I kind of, I find that quite sad in a way, because, yeah. you know, I, I, I think mean, it's just quite, it can be quite tricky to carve out a position that doesn't alienate people. Yeah. Um, I mean, both of the guys that, like, I was talking to, like, it was in a social environment, it was in a nice, relaxed environment, and we had a proper discussion about it, and it was kind yeah. of... You know, there was one girl in the discussion who went, oh, you're, are you a feminist? And kind of got a bit kind of like, you know, you could see. she. It was like a drawbridge came down, you know, because he was, he was saying this and he was a man. And I kind of like tried to get yeah. them to talk about it, but not in like a confrontational way. And I actually think like part of it is just bringing it up in conversation more yeah. so that it doesn't become something that's, oh, you're a feminist. But it's the just normal, you're a feminist. And it's something that you might talk about well, you might not talk about it, and it's just, you know, it's natural to talk about it. I mean, I, um, I had this, uh, about six months ago, I decided, I had, I often get men emailing me, right? With them, well, I often get men, men emailing me with rape threats and death threats and, you know, dis discussions of what my vagina looks like and what they'd like to do to it with a knife. This is what happens if you write, I'm sorry, like, but this is what happens if you write online, but I also get emails which are kind of lovely from... Uh, there's two types of men who email me with these feminist questions. One of them are men in their first year at university or men who are around their age going, I think I might be a feminist. <laughs> As if, like, it, it's, it's like I'm a doctor and they've discovered this rash. It's like, is this, is this normal? 
is this the right? I think I think I'd like. What should I read? And and I do I do try and answer because they're sort of adorable. And and often it's about pornography in there. Like I've heard this is really bad for you. Am I infected? Um, but then there's also the other half is from men in their normally their fifties or early sixties saying. I'm, I'm really worried about the way young men are talking right now. And I have, it's often men saying, I have daughters. This is what I think the world looks like for them. But it's secret. All these emails, they, they come across in this, like, it's like they're whispering in the back of the room. It's like, have you noticed? And so about six months ago, I put up on my Twitter, um, just would any, would any guys like to talk to me about, sex and gender and feminism, you know, anonymously, you know, it has to be a, a, you know, you don't have to identify yourself, and thinking like two or three people would answer, and I wrote a list of questions, I got 250 emails within about half an hour, I had to set up a, a new email address just to um, filter them all, and some of these people, they answered these, so they must have written 10,000 words, and these are people from all, I mean, obviously people filtered out by people who have a computer and read my Twitter at 10 at night or whatever, so that's self-selecting. But there were all kinds of different people. Men really want to talk. They really want to talk about this stuff. And I don't think that, I don't think that the interest isn't there. I think that it's not feminists and feminism that is giving the impression that it's us and them, that it's a battle. I think that is a lie sold to us and peddled to us by the mainstream press, which is owned and run almost exclusively by sexist white men who see women as a source of money. That's it. Um, I don't think that's our fault. And I also don't see it as our responsibility to make this more appealing and welcoming, because as far as I'm concerned, it is. If you want to learn, it is. <laughs> But I guess the other thing to say is that I would love to see a men's movement that wasn't the men's rights movement. <laughs> because if you, once you stop this, you know, this kind of idea of the second sex, once you stop saying that people, that's men, and then there are women who are a separate extra category, then you can start to talk about some of the problems that affect men, some of the things like funding for male-specific cancers, mm -hmm. boys' attainment in school. Um, male suicide rates and mental health, I think, is a really big problem. The fact that men don't go and see their doctors, those kind of cultures about that kind of toxicness of what masculinity means, um, fatherhood and the problems of that, that would be a great movement. But I wouldn't say that that would be a movement that women should run. And I think that's, that's kind of got to be that, you know, that's got to be the way that it goes. If feminism has got to be led by women and a men's movement would have to be led by men. Hmm. Um, I think we've got time for <coughs> one more question. Um, uh, lady over there on the side. Sorry, further down, sorry, at the front I meant. You, yes. Um, one of the things that's come up um, a couple of times this evening is um, about people who are first encountering feminism or who have learnt a little bit and then get put off learning more because they encounter people saying, oh, you're wrong. And it's something that I've noticed a lot online as well in my in discussions with people. They, they, and, you know, my, my partner said that as well, that he's entirely put off getting into, getting into feminism because he sees the stuff that I get um, as when I talk about things. And um, I was just wondering if there was any suggestions that any of the panellists had for ways to make feminism 
uh, for us as feminists to encourage others to learn more and to improve their own understanding and their own relationships with other people without um, feeling that they have to um, hide their anger or become or be less themselves. So being approachable without compromise, is that sort of what you're... Kind, kind of, yeah. Well, I'll, um, I'll let, please don't kill me. No, um, <laughs> who wants to weigh in on Can that first, Bins? Um, I feel I'm, I'm wary of monopolising this talk, which it's a bit late for that now. But, um, oh. um, but I, I, I just, I think there is something, the first thing I can say, and this is similar advice to when I began working in journalism, and it was... I need for you, that's me, this is not me talking to you. Someone said to me, I need for you to grow a thicker skin. Which is useless information, really. But it, you learn to, to I think, when, when I first started out as a freelancer, I would send a pitch in the morning, and then I would shut down my computer and walk away, because if I didn't see the rejection, then it hadn't happened. Hmm. It wasn't the smartest thing in the world. And over time, you get over it because you need to pay rent. Um, so I learned to just take the nose, take the, the sharp nose, learn to deal with the rejection. It's not always going to be sunshine and puppies. So I think there's a lot of people saying stuff like, oh, I'm, I'm really put off by these people. And that's completely fine. And that's completely reasonable. Um, I would say the, uh, the advice I would give then is to ask the question, maybe get flamed for it, state your position. But then after that, stop walk away and do some quiet reading away from that. Most people are talking as well as trying to listen, and sometimes people will be better served to listen for a while. I think a lot of people just keep digging and keep going, and then, understandably, they reach some level of resistance, and then it's all suddenly, what did I say? It's like, well, here's a paragraph of the shit you've said, mate. <laughs> so I think there is that people need to listen more, talk a little bit less. And I include myself in this. And there are times when I, I often do my action asterisks on Twitter where I write, panic moonwalking away. This is not for me. <laughs> and you don't always have to have an opinion. And that opinion that you have, you have to understand that it's very likely it's a wrong opinion. Yeah, I said it, a wrong, your opinion is wrong. <laughs> and I think a lot of the time you come into, people come, not you, I keep saying you, it's not you. People come into a discussion with, um, with this idea and they don't want it to be challenged, not really. And then when it is, they complain. And I think the people who, you know, take issue with that, understandably, like I said, are angry. So their response is not always exactly, you know, proportionate. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, I, I, it's hard, is what I'm saying. And I don't think you can come into feminism like most things and expect it to just be smooth sailing. It's quite naive, mm. I think. But also that it's harder to take the attacks from your own side. I think that's mm -hmm. the problem. Like, I know I'm at the stage where I get mad sexists sending me stuff. And that's fine, because I know that they don't like what I have to say. But the stuff that really hurts is from people who I want to respect me. Yeah. And that's the problem, is that those ones are the ones that sting. Because you think, I've, you know, I've lost your good opinion and I care about that. If someone is just a sexist knobber, then that's, you know, why do I care what they think? Um, and that's, that's really where you have to grow a thicker skin. And also that if you feel that, um, if you feel that somebody is, has no interest in taking this conversation further, if they're just there for the fight, 
walk away. Because I read someone's Twitter bar. It's my favorite Twitter bar. Again, I'm going to swear. I'm sorry. It said, it's just Twitter. It's not fucking oxygen. Go for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> and that might be the best advice I've ever heard. Holly? I think in terms of like growing a thicker skin, I mean, that's obviously like a brilliant piece of advice for anyone going into journalism. But like when we started the Vagenda and it suddenly sort of took off, um, which we didn't expect at all, um, and then we wrote a particular article uh, for the New Statesman that sort of name-dropped intersectionality, which made people really, really angry. We, um, at that point, had to send out a tweet saying, uh, two days after that happened, saying, can feminists please stop comparing us to Hitler and stop saying that what we wrote is the equivalent of Mein Kampf? Because they, we actually had a tweet telling us, you wrote the equivalent of Mein Kampf. We didn't, uh, <laughs> just to clarify. Um, it's very, very not Nazi rhetoric. Um, but um, that sort of thing can be really difficult. And in terms of accessibility, what we try and do, um, obviously sometimes maybe we get it wrong with the, the gender, is um, be satirical when we're trying to be angry and accessible at the same time. Because I know with... Um, with like my family, for instance, who are all sort of staunchly working class, and I have two sisters who both hate the Vagenda passionately, and one of them told me that I started the Vagenda because I didn't inherit the big boob gene, uh, <laughs> which, as I told Laurie earlier, was absolutely the reason. Uh, <laughs> that's the kind of people we are actually trying to reach, and so doing our sort of humorous pink website is how we're going about it, really, because um, a lot of that feminist ire can be very terrifying, especially when you're being called Hitler um, by random people. Especially when you're a teenage girl as well, I think. Like, we get a lot of, like, 12, 13, 14-year-old girls who are just like, oh, my God, it's terrifying out there on the internet. I never say the right thing. I never have the right terminology. I never, you know, I, 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 I'm kind of regretting getting involved in this because people are shouting at me. I just think, as a general rule, don't be a dick to people. <laughs> and that's, you know, a good general rule for real life as well as on the internet. It's brilliant and, advice. you know, if, if people were, you know, sort of heeded that more often, I think we'd have less of a problem, really, in terms of <laughs> inclusivity. So, yeah, don't be a dick. Yeah, I, I was good. I think... Another reason that sort of criticism from your own side can be the most difficult to take is that sometimes it's right and mm. it, can really, it can really damage your ego and damage your sense of self. And I get quite funny about looking at... You know, I, I actually feel physically quite stressed at the thought of looking at comments on things that I've written. Mm. And not if it's someone who's really mad telling me I'm stupid. It's if it's someone who says to me, I think, oh, God, that's right. And I think it's... And it's quite hard because, particularly if you feel very passionately about something like feminism, and it throws your view a little bit. You think, "Oh my God, am I, am I wrong about everything?" And you have this like existential crisis. <laughs> but um, and it is something you have to really work on, and 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 it's worth it because often if your view is changed, there's a real value in that, and and it's part of how you people do work together more effectively. But um, I find it really hard. <laughs> Well, I think we need to call it to a halt there because we need to let you all go home. But um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you to all our panellists. Thank you very much to Conway Hall. Um, and, yeah, thank you for coming and thank you for supporting this. And we hope to do something similar again soon. Thank you. 
Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.